This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Since we're in the Seuss room, I have to do this. I, I seriously thought about giving the entire talk in rhyming prose. <laughs> but the future of learning gives me quite a yearning to teach about thing one and thing two. But to speak so Seussian makes my brain antiladuvian, so I'll not speak like the Lorax to you. And I thought about doing the whole talk like that, but, <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> uh, so I do want to talk, though, on the other hand, about the role of the library and the role of learning and how we think about education in the large, in all of our futures. So I'm going to start by looking at the past, and you probably know this guy, Thomas Edison, who is uh, famous for, among lots of inventions that he made, but he's also famous for having said, books will soon be obsolete in public schools. You can see how well that worked out. 1913, he said that. Now, why would he say that? Because he had just recently invented this technology, so a lot of this talk is going to be about the relationship between learning and technology and how we shift from one technology to another, in particular in a knowledge sense. So Edison, smart guy, terrible futurist, but a very smart inventor. But he did not realize that we now live in an age where you can go to Google and type in Saint chapelle stained glass, and you can get a picture like this. We live in a time of instant access for a huge repository of the world's information. You can also find things that you might not have expected. So if, for example, you're doing, say, research on Tesla coils or the life of Tesla, you, would not, you might type in Tesla and get something like this. I have to turn up the volume on this. So you might not have expected that. So what's going on here? So what's going on is we ha now have a search engine, search engines, that allow you to make loose connections between terms and deep things that are out there in the world, on the web, or in file servers or databases somewhere. So for example, on Google News archives, we have millions of pages of archival news imagery. So here, for example, from 1906 is the African-American ledger published in Baltimore. So you can research online without having to travel to the only other copy of this, which is in Baltimore. Now, you probably use Google Books, and so you know what that does, how it shifts the center of power, how it shifts the way you use things. As we develop more technology, guess what? That's going to happen more and more. So I'm going to show you, and I'm going to talk over a little video here. And this is um, a demonstration of Google Earth VR. So this is not surprising that you have a VR headset, but here you can control your movement throughout the world. And so watch what she does. She is flying around using the controller in her hand to visit this, and when you have the headset on, it's really high-res 3D, which is amazing because we have the whole world online. So in particular, you can go there and you can change the sun and the sky. You can go backwards and see archival imagery. You can go 
in my case, to home, see the Golden Gate Bridge, or fly through the Rockies, through the Grand Canyon, or fly to other countries. How does this change the way you think? How does it change your perception of Rio, or Rome, or home? In the not-too-distant future, this will run easily on your phone. So you will have that same experience in your pocket. So this story, though, is not totally about whizzy technology. Part of it is, but not all of it. In particular, it's about learning and what's the future of learning. So this is a picture of my daughter a couple years ago. She's using, bless her heart, <laughs> ink on crushed trees to learn elementary Turkish grammar. And she's reading, and it's, you know, she's now a Turkish minor um, at Georgetown. But what's so interesting about it is she's also got her, her headset on. And everything I know about learning theory says, listening to music while you study is a terrible idea. And so I said, daughter, you know, come on, we know better. And she said, you don't understand, Dad. I'm listening to a Turkish news broadcast. So she was hearing the things she was studying and the nature of learning changes yet again. So a couple days later, we were in downtown Palo Alto, where we live. And I walked in a store. And I left her outside. She said, I don't want to look for shoes or whatever it was. I'm going to stay outside, and I'm going to sit with my, my phone. And you know what happens when teenagers sit with phones, right? They sit there, and I walk outside, see her in the universal teenager posture. And she's doing something. And I thought... I'll sneak up behind her and see what kind of winged pigs flying in space game she's playing. But I sneak up behind her and I see she's doing this. She's studying conversational Icelandic. Did you know there's an app for that? My deep point about that is it's trivial to find if you know that kind of thing exists. I'm going to come back to this topic, this idea, multiple times. If you know the thing exists, you can find it. How do you know what things exist? Okay? This is fascinating because all of a sudden we're moving from a world of a particular information infrastructure to another one where we're creating new stuff all the time. That's kind of your job as students, as entrepreneurs, is to create new things. Now, my job is really to be a cyber-tribal technocognitive anthropologist. And what I mean by that is I study people, including my daughter, obviously, um, and I study how they use these information technologies to learn about the world, how they organize their own education, and how they work at home, in the workplace, or in the library. So this is interesting to me because not very long ago, like when I was a graduate student, library meant print. And that was kind of it, maybe microfilm in very advanced libraries. Right? But now we live in a world where we have all these tools like the Icelandic Conversation app. But we also have a whole new set of capabilities available through this device in your pocket. So this is nominally a phone, but it's actually much more. So let me tell you a story. In uh, February 2015, uh, Two Irishmen, Jerry McCann and Sean Mulcahy, were driving an ambulance in downtown Cork. They get a call, go to this address, pick up this mother who's in late-term labor. And they go, okay, they scoop her up, and they start driving to the hospital, and it's clearly too late. Now, 
Jerry and, and Sean speak Gaelic and they speak English, but the mother only speaks Swahili. What do you do? So Jerry pulls out his phone, goes to the Google Translate app, and types in the word push in English. And you see that little speaker icon, Swahili? He kept pushing it, telling the mother to push in turn. And that baby was born in the ambulance. Interesting application of a technology in a context we had never planned for. This kind of thing happens all the time because what happens is that we lived in an old technology like this. Now, there's an important point I want to make today, which is you have to know about the structure of information. So you know what this is. Wait, do you know what that is? <laughs> How many of you have actually used that? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, less than 10% of the audience. Okay? Interesting point, Eric. Right? So what is that? It's a card catalog. What is it? It is an index. What is this? It's sorted by subject matter. I'm sorry, this is by author. Okay? What if you wanted to resort by, say, date of publication of that item? With a card catalog, good luck. You'll be here for the next 20 years resorting it. But you know as computational people that I could do a resort trivially. I would just click on the button on the column header at the top of the spreadsheet, right? And it would sort by that, by that field. So what's interesting here is you need to know the structure of information, what kinds of things you can do, but you also need to know what kinds of things you can find online. Right? So this is a deep point for today, and this is maybe the, the key point I want you to take away, which is I'm trying to advocate for something called informacy. Now, I'm discriminating that from information literacy. You've heard of information literacy, right? Well, to too many people, it means, I know how to use Excel. I know how to use PowerPoint. That's not what I mean. What I mean by informacy, is by extension from literacy, is that you know how information is created, how it's stored, how it's organized, how you can use it, how you can find it. It's all that stuff. And so basically the rest of the talk is convincing you that this is a new way the future of learning is going to be organized. It's going to be run. is by knowing about informacy, having that as a capability. Because the card catalog index, a linear sort on author name or subject or whatever, is an inadequate description of what we live in now, which is this complex, hyperlinked universe of content. So what I started to do when I was putting this talk together was I put together a list of different kind of media objects, different kind of genres of, of stuff that I can find on the web. And that's a fool's errand. Don't try this. Uh, I, I got to, I don't know, it, it kind of runs on and on for multiple pages, and I, I figured, this is stupid, stop. Because as fast as I was writing media types on there, they were disappearing. I wrote the word vine. Remember vines? <laughs> They're not a thing anymore, right? They're gone. So... I wanted to, to give you, though, a, a sense of the scope and breadth of stuff that's available online. Because, for example, you could say unemployment rate in Maryland. And you will get, if you do this to Google, the data. But also, we know that people most often compare Maryland's unemployment rate with that of Texas and Virginia. So we have already noticed that, and we pre-computed that for you. Okay? A, did you know that there's a whole repository of public data available on Google? And if you know about it, you can find it, and you can explore it and visualize it. So it allows you to do things like this. 
You can download the data. You could upload data of your own if you have public data like that. Now, it's interesting because if you don't know that thing exists, it warps the way you think about learning online. Let me show you a little video here. This video is of a guy who comes in my lab, and this guy is given the task of finding something to do in San Francisco on Saturday night. Okay? Now, what you're going to see is just a little video, and you'll hear him talking. The pink thing is just the eye tracking. Ignore that. But listen to what he says. Listen to what he does. So, yeah, I want to try with one last thing. Okay. Okay. I see what happened. I'm in a finished location. Oh, see? They're not giving me a chance. They're going for kids. No one will be able to find So, watch this. I should find out. So, why is that funny? It, it's sort of an interesting, deep problem. Why is it funny? I'm not going to show you the next bit of video because he modifies the query to say, Adult Activities, San Francisco, Saturday night. I can't show that to you. Don't do it in this room. Okay? NSFW. Um, uh, so the point is, how is it possible this guy doesn't understand the catalog, as it were? He doesn't understand that the internet is for porn, right? And that there are vast areas of stuff where you might not want to do it, especially in my lab with my young female research assistant. So he was just clueless. But what does that imply about us? What areas of the knowledge graph do we not understand? What do you not know about let me give you an example of a question that came up. I was on a bike ride, and I up in the hills above San Francisco, and I saw this, this field of, of trees, very taken by it. So I pulled out my phone and took a photograph of it. And I was thinking, um, what kind of trees are those? And secondly, when I took that photograph, I could hear a bell. So obvious research question, what kind of trees are these? Why do I hear a bell? How would you solve that problem? What would you do? So I will tell you what I did. I know a little bit about the structure of information on the web and the structure of information that my cell phone takes. So you probably know, or I hope you know, that when you take a photograph, you get XF metadata attached to the photo. Does anybody know what XF metadata is? Let me tell you. It's all the metadata that's written down by the phone and tacked onto your image. So in particular, it does things like exposure, how many bits per pixel you see, and blah, 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 blah. But the interesting bit down here that I knew about was this. See that? GPS metadata. It gives the latitude and longitude plus or minus a meter from where you took that photograph. So if you send a photograph to your mom saying, I was not at that party, I was here, and yet the GPS data says you were at that party, you can't hide if your mom knows about XF metadata. So <laughs> I assume she does. right? But the point is, there's all kinds of information lying around in the world. If you don't know about it, you cannot utilize it. You can't use it to get answers to your questions. So what I did is I just yanked that metadata out of there, went to Google Street View, this Google Maps, pasted in the lat long like that. You see that there. And it tells me, oh, it's 26737 Taffy Road. Wow. From image to location. 
Once I go there, I can click on Street View, and I can show you that that picture, that's the Street View image. Question, everybody know about Street View? Okay. okay, you know about Street View. So look at that. That's the picture on Google Maps. And that's my photograph, upper left corner. It's clearly the same place, right? Now, in Street View, as you know, you can look around. So I pivot around. I see, happen to see that sign. And I don't know about you, but my house doesn't have a name. So it's easy to go to Google and type in Taffy House Los Altos Hills. Remember, my goal is to figure out what kind of trees those are. And I'm figuring that if it's got a named house, I bet there's an article about it somewhere. So you very quickly learn that that's the former house of Bill Packard. Hewlett and Packard, that's him. You very quickly see multiple web pages saying he had a passion for apricot trees. And those are all apricot trees. I went back in the middle of summer when the apricots were there, and the place was orange with apricots. So second question, what's the bell thing about? So I got the location now where that picture was taken. So I go to that location on Google Maps, and I type in church or school, because that's the only thing I can think of that would make a bell sound. And you get to a map, and all those little red bubbles are things, and you kind of examine them one by one. That's not it. Go up there, and you see that one? You can't read it, but I will read it to you. It says, Poor Claire Nuns. Nuns? Really? So I can go to that, and I pull out the XF metadata for the time of day. And it says, that picture was taken at 4.35 p.m. Poor Claire's, Los Altos Hills. The obvious query is that, right there. Poor Claire's, Los Altos Hills, Bells. And it takes you to their WordPress site, because they're modern nuns. <laughs> of course they have a blog, right? And so once you're there, it says a day in the monastery, and it very nicely shows you the bell. If you look on the page, it says, that's the time for dinner. So now I know, as I was taking that photograph, the nuns were all walking over to dinner. Point. Did you know you could do that? That you could go from this random photograph of random trees somewhere in the world and figure out why you were hearing a bell in the background. This is what I mean by informacy, is knowing what's possible and knowing that there are things like XF metadata and knowing that it is possible to go from a photograph to a search result. Now, I bring this up because informacy is our future. It's your future. You're a student at UC San Diego. Your future is understanding how information is structured, how to use it. So in particular, one of the things I study a lot is how people search. So I ask the obvious question, how often do you search? So let me ask you, how often do you search? Once a day, twice a day, 100 times a day, right? A lot, so many it's uncountable. So let me tell you what the reality is, okay? So we've asked a lot of people, and we ask people how much uh, they search, and here's the bottom line. Of the people we've asked, thousands of people, 92%, they're confident in their searching ability, and yet, and yet, 66% search less than one time a day. Can you imagine searching less than one time a day? How many of you have searched online today? Okay. Anybody who didn't raise their hand is lying, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know this population. It's great. But my point is, you know, people are 90% you know, of confident in their searchability, and yet they do it less than once a day. This drives me crazy because you can't get good at anything doing it for five seconds, maybe once a week. That's crazy talk. 
So we have to think about what it takes to develop these skills, these research skills, these online research skills. So let me tell you something I found that just floored me when I was doing research on how many skills people have in their ability to search. And so you probably know how to find text on a page. You know this, right? You open a web page, you open a Microsoft Word document, whatever. You know how to type. Well, if you're on a, on a Mac, you do Command-F, right? If you're on the other kind of computer, you do Control-F, <laughs> right? And you do one of those two things. I do both, depending on what kind of keyboard I'm on. So you know Control-F. So I do a lot of studies, like I said. So I asked a bunch of people to find in this web page, and this is just a, a 5K um, search, uh, race results, how long did Beth Smith take to run this race? How long would that take you? Five seconds, maybe 10, something like that, right? By the way, if you don't know Control-F, talk to me afterwards. <laughs> um, and here's the interesting result. So I've run this, uh, done this, this study many times now, but the fascinating thing about this is this graph. So most of us are over here in this bucket, right? So this is 10 seconds, 20 seconds, so we're all over here because we know this, right? But there are a lot of people... This is five minutes over here. Yes, there were people who sat in my lab for five minutes trying to find that one piece of information. Okay? The second thing that's fascinating about this is that if you took more than two minutes to find that data, 25% of those answers are wrong. This is about the most trivial question I could ask you. What time did Beth Smith take to run that race? And yet a quarter of the answers are wrong. How is that even possible? I'll tell you. Well, the people who don't know Control-F also don't know Control-C, copy, and Control-V, paste. So they would look up Beth Smith's time and then go back to my survey form and then type the number they remembered, and a quarter of the time they got a digit wrong. You see the problem here? Are they good searchers? So this fascinated me. So I started asking, how many people know Control-F? How many people know how to search? The, the fundamental search skill of Control-F, find in text. And I found um, 2,200, 22, actually, it's a much bigger number now. It's like 10,000. But it doesn't matter. The, numbers, the, the result is the same. 90% of US internet users do not know this. That means I have bet nods that at least one person in this room doesn't know this. So you're welcome. Right? <laughs> um, uh, I go and give talks to like, U.S. Um, uh, English teacher con conventions and so on, and roughly half of them don't know it. We looked at 50,000 Firefox users, and it was slightly higher. I don't know why, what that says about Firefox users. <laughs> Just saying. Um, but the really interesting result, I think, is, you know, A, nobody knows it, statistically speaking. So please teach your brother, teach your mom, teach your dad, because they probably don't know this. It will make their life better. So in another study, we asked people a bunch of easy trivia questions like this. Like, um, where is the altar stone at Stonehenge believed to come from? We had a whole suite of these things. There was seven of them. We asked a ton of people these questions. And here's the result. Now, you mostly don't care about this, but uh, you look in the bottom there. It says Dan's Control-F condition. If the green dot, the farther to the left it is, the faster you are. And don't worry about all the other ones. But there's a lot of conditions in which people are, are slower. So the result is, the bottom line is, if you know how to use Control-F, you are 12% faster than people who don't know it. Okay? That means the people in this room who know Control-F are 12% faster than 90% of the U.S. population at answering questions. 
That's an amazing number. And the error bars here are basically zero, because I've tested almost a million people at this point. So what this means, though, is at the same time, we look at the, from the uh, OECD results uh, taken uh, last year, distribution of computer skills, up is strong and good, down is bad and terrible. So basically, the gray bars at the bottom across different countries are people who basically cannot use computers. So the surprising result is in Japan, something like 35% of people do not and have no clue on how to use computers. That shocked me. But then, over in the United States, 20% of the population, one in five in the US, do not know how to use computers at all. Okay? But then, if we look at the strong and even the medium level, it's up at 70% of people are low or poor in their ability to use computers in the US, far left. 70%? These are fundamental skills for the modern age. So this is fascinating because we assume that everybody knows this. We assume everybody knows control F. We assume that stuff. And yet, my studies show they don't know it. So what does that say about informacy? What does that say about the future of learning? So this is that list of, culture, of different kinds of genres I mentioned, or media types. And there's an important one I need to tell you about, the spoof site. How many people know what a spoof site is? Okay, okay the rest of you, you're going to learn something deeply important. Okay? A spoof site is a website where it's overtly and consciously set up to fake you out. So for example, probably the best one Every teacher in the U.S. knows this, is the great Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus website. <laughs> Hint, it's a spoof site. I just told you that, right? There is no such animal. And yet, thousands of sixth graders every year write learned articles for their teacher on the Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus. Now, the deep irony of this was that website was created by a teacher to teach web credibility and utterly failed. <laughs> this is an important point, right? Because when you get to something more sophisticated, like the RYT Hospital website, it looks like this. Really high, uh, high production values, very glossy. It has a copyright. It's got phone numbers. It's got a place where you can put in your credit card. That works. They will take your money. And uh, you only start to worry about it when you get to this page and you realize they're doing treatments for male pregnancy, Really? You should be skeptical at this point. Your spidey sense should start tingling. And yet, we live in an age where this kind of stuff is rampant. So I have to show this. I'm going to show you a couple of examples of what are clearly spoof sites or spoofs of various forms. And yet, sometimes people don't get it. So uh, let me tell you up front, the Holy Father did not do a magic trick, right? Uh, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I know it's got the CNN logo on it. Somebody faked the video, right? And if you, as a, as a skilled consumer of video, look in there, you can actually see the edits. But most people, when they look at it, go, wow, he could do that. <laughs> Francis is cool. Um, and, and, and yet, this is not a new problem. Because remember Edison? Remember Thomas Edison? So um, 
This is a film that was produced in his lab, and this is in the Spanish-American War, 1899. And if you look this up in the Library of Congress, the metadata says this is a group of the Rough Riders um, going down a country road, and they have sharpshooters in the foreground. You'll see the sharpshooters there in the foreground. They're shooting at the enemy. They're shooting over their dead horse. This is the metadata that's describing this, uh, this object in the Library of Congress. Watch the horse, okay? Just watch the horse. Assuming, there we go. That is not a dead horse. <laughs> so if you spend a little bit of time and look at this, you, you quickly find out there's a lot of internal inconsistencies. The biggest one is, A, it's not a dead horse. <laughs> it's kicking. Um, second thing is those trees in the background, those are not trees native to Cuba. They are, on the other hand, native to New Jersey, which is where Edison's lab was. And so this is a recreation. And if you finally work all the way back, you can discover he was putting out these recreations as educational content. Fake news. Heard that recently? So it's a real problem, right? And the pro part of the problem is we do not yet have an informant population. So this is an interesting story. Um, it's totally fake because, in fact, if you dig up the original author of it, he says, I can th earn a few hundred dollars a month from my news site. News site. It performs so badly. But if I add stuff about gay baboons, stuff about pastors saying where they went to heaven, that goes viral, and he makes money. Okay? So there's a monetary incentive to have really salacious pictures of baboons. Um, and, yet, and yet, we're gullible, right? We don't do the first obvious thing. And, you know, so a, a few hundred thousand people believe this is an actual photograph. Now, you're sophisticated consumers of, of imagery, right? So you know it's probably not real. He probably isn't in a business suit on a raging river. Um, but if you zoom in, because you know how to use Control Plus, Command Plus, right? You can see that he's handing him a mega hat, which is kind of weird, but okay. And if you look carefully, you can see here all the hallmarks of video editing. That's Photoshop, you know, non non uh, interference patterns with the with the background image. So you know that stuff. You're informant, right? Great. So it gets harder and harder, though, because this is a, a claim that Pope Francis... See how we've trumped with Pope Francis? It's great. Um, uh, just back Trump. Uh, now, that actually never happened. And at the bottom, there's a URL from factcheck.org. But how much do you start to fact-check everything? How much time are you willing to spend on that? Particularly in a world where things like this happened during the last election, you remember that. There was a newspaper article like this. People were sending me a link to the New York Times saying Warren endorses Sanders. That also never happened, although it's vaguely possible, right? What happened? Well, if you look carefully at the URL, you'll find out at the end of it, it says nytimes.com slash clonezone.com. Like, what? Turns out Clone Zone is a site dedicated to taking a website and then copying its look and feel and giving it back to you as an editable HTML document. That means you can edit the New York Times trade dress. That page right here looks exactly like New York Times. 
and yet people don't get it. They don't notice the clonezone.com at the end because they don't read the URL. They don't even take a first look at it. This is a problem. So where I'm going with this is sort of I'm highlighting some of the issues because these are the things that we need to help our students, ourselves, our citizenry to become informant, to learn about these things because this is where the future is going to be. And a really nice example of this is knowing how to read, how to be literate in the culture of the Internet. So you know all this stuff, right? You know what those acronyms, those emoticons are and those acronyms and all the concepts, right? But I found this the other day on a well-known QA site. Is it true that Rosa Parks would have moved to the back of the bus, but she was listening to her iPod? And the answer is, yeah, it's true. And the questioner at the very bottom says, Asker's waiting, five stars, thank you, I'll put that in my report. I trust you have the nicest avatar. What went wrong here? <laughs> what went wrong is the asker did not understand that emoticon. The asker did not understand how to read emoticonology. So that, in case you don't know, is the universal emoticon for sarcastic reply. It's the tongue sticking out, right? So um, the asker rated that very highly and said, you have the nicest avatar, I, that's why I trust you. So assessment of credibility on the basis of the beauty of one's avatar is not a, a legitimate <laughs> strategy. Right? Don't do that. But like I was showing you earlier with the exif metadata, we live in a time when we have the resources to do remarkable things. So this picture shows up on my office mate's computer He's a photographer, and I turn to him and say, Simon, that's great. Where is that? He says, I don't know. I don't remember. So what would you do? Well, what I did is I grabbed the file off his computer and did search, Google search by image. How many people know about search by image? Okay. The other half of you need to learn this. I have a course you can learn it in. Um, <laughs> but here, it took roughly five seconds to figure out that that's Red Rock Canyon right outside of Las Vegas. Oh, yeah, I remember taking that picture now. And this is important because if you know how to search by image, you can take an image like that one and search by image and discover that the original one is that one. So the claim is that's from Florence this year. But the original picture here, see the boat? Now, what's so funny about this is look at the difference between these two images. This is in the hurricane, right? That's the original picture. Notice anything different? Well, A, Trump's not in it. But B, see those guys in the far left? They're not in it either. So there's all kinds of shopping going on here. If you don't know how to do that search, you don't probably know how to figure out that that's a fake photograph. And the problem is not just that we live where people are making money from fakery. We also live in a world with incredible information velocity. Every minute we're here, 400 hours of YouTube videos being uploaded to the servers. 400 hours. Let's assume 75% is cat video. Okay? Let's assume 1% of it, or even half of a percent of that. Let's do 1%, right? 1% of that is relevant to your interest, to your, say, study of research, to your particular life. 1% of 400 hours is four hours. That's every minute. You're behind already. In the time it took me to say that, you're behind. So we're moving from a world of information 
quality and information content that's bare, you know, one of the functions of the library is to vet and to develop the catalog and create stuff that's reasonable and accessible. But YouTube is massive. And it's not just video, it's also books. How many, this year, this year alone in the US, 300,000 books, 250,000 in, in China, 149,000 and so on. And of course, journals. Scholarly journals have a huge problem. There's a thing called vampire journals, which basically will take anything you send them. So my friends David and Eddie at NYU uh, and UCLA wrote this paper. I won't read it to you. It's basically one sentence repeated many, many times for 10 pages. Okay? Um, and it is now an accepted paper to the International Journal of Advanced Computer Technology. <laughs> you see the problem? And there are many, many, these, these things are kind of growing fast because they're another moneymaker. So, as I said, we live in this time of you know, information velocity and acceleration. But we also live, like with the search by image, in an era when the structure of information, the structure on the web, is not obvious. Remember the guy trying to do adult activities in San Francisco? Well, as we develop new methods for searching, as we develop new content for the web, it's important to sort of stay on top of it. You can't stay on top of all of it, obviously. You have to triage. That's an important skill. But here's a story about my son. Let me stop that. I'll play the music again just so you can hear it. But he loves to go to Stanford basketball games, and he loves to hear that song play. There we go. That song. You have probably sung this song, haven't you? I know you have. (laughs) And he says to me, Dad, you know, I, I really want that song on my phone. How do I get it? How do you find something like that? Good guess, it won't work. Uh, because what we have there are a thousand drunken fans screaming that song and Shazam only likes clean digitally recorded copies right? Soundhound same same sort of thing so I think ah I'm a smart guy lyric search what are the lyrics (laughs) oh So I work at Google, and I think, you know, I work in the search group. I know all the coolest technology, all the best methods. And I said, give up. You're not going to find it. My son turns to Google and types in, oh, 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 oh. (laughs) See the first hit? (laughs) He now has that song on his phone. And so what did I not understand? What I didn't understand is that there are now a plethora of question-answering sites where people type in questions like, what's that song where the words go, oh, 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 oh? (laughs) And it only takes like a thousand 16-year-old boys to type that in and one person to answer it correctly, and we make the association. So when the next 16-year-old boy comes in and types, oh, 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 that's what you want. Now we know. Okay. So what's interesting to me about this is we have enormous technology, enormous resources. We can see Saint Chapelle, we can see flights to the moon, we can go visit Edgar Watt. And yet, people just sort of silly ways accept fake news. They don't think to check. And so one of the things I'm trying to convince people to be informant about is just being slightly more curious 
And this isn't a lot. This is like asking one more question about things you may or may not understand. For instance, like I said, I go and talk to lots of English teachers, and um, I often show them this book and say, have you read this book? Universally, yes. We've all read this book. Or you should have read this book. right? And so we all read this book. And so I then ask them the obvious question, what's the title about? And the more the people who really read the book say, oh, it's about that submarine. It's a science fiction book about the submarine that goes under the water. Right? So 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is the depth to which the Nautilus went underwater. So then I ask the next question, what's a league? Now, if you're you know, skilled in the art of English, you might recognize that as an old measurement of, of distance, about three miles. So one league is three miles. So 20,000 miles times three is how much? It's like 60,000 miles, right? So 20,000 leagues in miles is 69,000 miles. Okay, do you see a problem beginning to form here? So you can go to Google and ask, what's the diameter of the Earth in miles? <laughs> you, you see the difference? It's off by roughly a factor of 10. What that tells me is the English teachers who were teaching this book did not understand the title. Right? What else do you not understand? How often do you pursue that one additional question? So where I'm going with this is one of the skills is learning how to ask questions. And I mean this sort of seriously now, because you know, people have been saying this forever. But now, it's not optional. It's not just a nice to have. You really need to know how to ask questions. And the reason I bring this up is because people come to me and ask a question like this. Dan, I saw this great website, EPA Facts. And it's all about the environment and about all stuff. But it's kind of funny. Why is the EPA? asking questions like EPA overreach suffers a big loss or, or a social media campaign breaks the law. What is up with this site? Why is the EPA so weird? And so I say, well, that's interesting, but let's go look at the site. And you see EPA Facts is a project of the Environmental Policy Alliance. Does that strike you as odd? The EPA I know about is the Environmental Protection Agency. There's a mismatch here. So you have to be aware of what's normal and when things start to look funny. Okay, highlighting the high cost, the environmental protection agencies, regulatory actions, peeling back the layers of secrecy surrounding the agency. This is weird. So that should cause you to ask one more question. So I would type in and do a search for the environmental protection agency and discover that that EPA is epa.gov. You should know what .gov means. It's a government official federal site, okay? Or state site. So that's the logo. And see any similarities between the logo, right? Okay, again, another symbol that something is funky is happening. So if you go on and you dig in a little bit more, you find the epafacts.com, that's their street address, okay? Eight, it's on Vermont Avenue, Suite 800, Washington, D.C. Cool. That's where I expect the EPA to be. So let's type in that street address and find out that Berman and Company is at exactly the same suite in the same street in DC. They share a suite? What is going on here? Now you should be very suspicious. So let me type in the Environmental Protection Agency and discover what their street address is, and it ain't the same. Okay? So if you go on, you'll discover that those two organizations are the same place. One more query, you can find out that epafacts.com 
is a lobbying site by Berman and Company who lobbies for big ag, big oil, big pharma. They say that on their website, but they don't make the connection explicitly. You have to figure it out. My point is that this kind of validation checking is something that 80% of college students do not know how to do successfully. I'm looking at you guys. Okay? This is work done by my friend Sam Weinberg at Stanford. He's done this really interesting study where he gives things like that to university students like you and says, is this a credible site or not? 80% of them spend five minutes and they say, sure, it's fine to me. Looks good. This is a really important skill. So we live in this funny time where we have vast amounts of quantity and yet kind of questionable quality. So we have all this content. What do we do? So let me tell you what to do. This is what I think, this is a kind of prescription for the future of learning, is we need to be metacognitive. And what I mean by that is you need to learn how to learn, especially once you walk out the door with your degree in hand. Your learning's not done. It just began. So the most important thing you can have is the skill of practicing your metacognitive learning. How do you do that? Plan on taking classes for the rest of your life. I hope you like it here because you're going to keep doing it. You have to become aware of changes in your information ecology because one of the key factors of our modern information age is it constantly changes, and it changes faster and faster with every year. One way to do that is you subscribe to newsletters or blogs, but you have something telling you every day or every week, here's what's happening. Here are new media kinds. Here are new genres. Here's new ways of finding out information. Understand the resources you have. When I interview people, for example, I visit them at home or in their, their workplace, I discover that they learn a little bit about how to use the system, and they plateau out. So all the capacity, all the search capabilities Google has, people use like 5%, and they stop learning. Don't do that. Keep learning. Keep exploring. And seek out instruction. So, for example, you've heard of MOOCs, these massive open online classes. There are lots and lots of MOOCs, right? Uh, currently, MOOCs have 81 million students in them. Uh, 800 universities are giving them. There's nine, roughly 10,000 courses now. And that's the growth curve. Yes, there's a MOOC for you. Remember, there's an app for that. There's a MOOC for you to teach you something, including, well, I'll show you my MOOC. Uh, so this is my MOOC, Power Searching with Google which is explicitly about these searching skills, these online research skills. I've had four million students take this class. And this is the best chart I have in all my talks anywhere. What this is showing you is that this centerpiece right here is during the course. So students come in, and for two weeks before they enter my course, we track how sophisticated their searches are. And they're not very good. They're down here at like 0.4 on my scale. During the course, guess what? They go up and up and up and up, and they get up here to 1.6. 4x improvement. Yay! We're winning, right? They leave the course, and of course, they start forgetting everything. And I thought, oh no, this is bad. But they exit the course, and this is uh, two weeks after the course. They are now at 0.8. So this is a persistent change in behavior for two weeks after the course. And if you've got that, it lasts forever. So I know this stuff works, or at least my class works. Uh, I also have a blog, and you, you can follow my blog or not. The important thing is 
you should follow somebody's blog on this topic. Because really, the thing is that the future of learning really means that we have to develop this new kind of literacy, this kind of informacy. And what that means is you know what information is and how to find it. You have to know the ways in which this kind of stuff changes and the ways in which the tools will become manifest and the ways that that will change over time. We live in an age where the breadth and depth of information is completely unparalleled. Nobody before us has ever had this kind of access, this kind of depth of information. There are new kinds of content, new kinds of context, but it's a chaotic media landscape. You need to learn how to, ma- how to navigate and function in that landscape. And yet, collectively, we as a society don't really have a functional educational program for this. Who taught you Control-F? Where did you learn it? I know where you learned it. You learned it by watching somebody in your class. How'd you do that? There was no course of wager that teaches that to your students. So these kinds of skills, these research skills, these ability to understand, is, leads us to a place where you can actually navigate through this. At worst, we see people looking at a collection of trivia, much of it sensationalistic. And yet, if you know this stuff, if you know these new kinds of literacies, then all of a sudden, we can navigate and function and search effectively in this new landscape. And my job, my quest really, in some sense, is to bring these kinds of research skills to the universe. Thank you very much. I have time for a few questions, if anybody wants to ask anything. What would be the best strategy to teach an older relative to use in, like internet effectively? Because my boyfriend has like mom and stepmom who just post like random stuff on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my mom doesn't use Facebook, <laughs> so I feel your pain. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's a it's a really hard problem because uh, I actually teach about a class a month in the public libraries. And so I'm specifically looking for your mom and your boyfriend's mom and all of these people. And it's a really hard problem. And so in those kinds of classes, you kind of have to start at the very beginning. Like, here's how you open the web browser, right? You click on that. No, 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 don't click there. Click there. And, and so you have to start at the very, very beginning. And it's, it just accept that it's a slow process. Do not try to teach them HTML coding, right? It's just, you know, it's not going to work. Um, but try to teach them basic operations, like how do you get into email, and try to motivate it with things that they care about. So, true story, uh, you can say, here's how you use Google to ask a question, and you can get the answer. Um, I've had older adults say, did you type in the answer? And at that point, you might want to ta- teach them all about you know, how the World Wide Web is. Suppress that urge. Just say it's like looking through a lot of books. So you try to map it to metaphors that they know and understand. But that's what I would do. Hi. I just wanted to get your thoughts on how do we help people explore effectively. So how do we prevent them from sort of satisfying and finding a result that's good enough but maybe not the best and how we help them know that? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, in my studies I see that kind of stuff happening all the time. So there's an effect called confirmation bias. And so what people do, they do this both consciously and, and unconsciously. So what they tend to do is to, to do a query, find a result, and say, oh, yeah, I believe that. I'm done. Or they look at the very number one result, or the, and that's it. Or, that's good. Google tells me the truth. 
Let me tell you a deep insight. The first result is not necessarily the right result. Okay? We do the best we can based on ranking factors and so on, but it might not be right. Uh, it's just super popular, and what, there's many other reasons it could be number one. The, the other thing that happens is, is, is that people bake in accidentally the confirmation bias into the query. For instance, uh, I was watching a student searching for information about octopus, and he wanted to know how big is an average octopus. And so somebody at some point told him the octopus is on average 21 inches. So his query is average length octopus 21 inches. Guess what? The answer is yes. You could say average length octopus 10 inches. The answer is yes. You have biased the query. Right? So it's, it's a double-edged sword. You can bias the query, and believe me, there's an answer for almost any biased query you give it. So, you know, I'm sure your teachers, when you were younger, said there are no bad questions. Let me tell you, there are bad questions. There are bad questions that are constructed to bias the result. And that's an example of one. So that's, yeah. So basically what I'm saying is I trust in education. I believe that we can teach people how to get over this satisfying behavior. Because it's not hard once you point it out, right? But it's the kind of thing that people do, you know, sort of naturally without thinking too much. So we need to teach it. One for this side. Here we go. If the first answer isn't always right, why is there an I'm feeling lucky button? All I'm feeling lucky does is it takes you to number one. That's all it does. It's funny. That's all. <laughs> That's literally it. Does anybody ever push it? Uh, rarely. Uh, it was more popular, say, 10 years ago, uh, when people would do it, uh, or people would do it, for example, for a navigation query. You know, I know I want the UCSD site, so I type in UCSD. Well, I'm feeling lucky. And you know where it's going to go. You don't have to think. People use it for that. It's, now it's marketing. That's all it is. Okay, let's do one on this side. Whoever's got the mic. Yeah. Yeah, hey. Um, do you do any research into how like, the rise of smart assistants that are more context-aware affects the efficacy of people's searches? Um, yeah, we do a lot of research on that. Uh, there are multiple effects here. There's, there's one uh, where it kind of does autocomplete. So as you're typing or as you're speaking, it will automatically complete the rest of your query, the one it thinks you're going to do. And there's a really surprising result, uh, which was we had thought that that would end up funneling people into doing the same query all the time. And so we had thought that the diversity of queries would go down. In fact, almost nothing's changed. But what it's doing is saving a lot of typing time. And so for people who have motor problems or are just slow typers, or you don't really even know how to type, for example, in a less literate population, saves them huge amounts of time. So it, it, that's a sort of net benefit. Um, smart assistance is a classic case, though, of it's very difficult to discover what you can ask and what you can't ask. I don't know about you, but I've tried all kinds of things. I say to, OK, Google, do this, and it says, I can't do that yet. So discovery is tough, and that's an unsolved problem, and we're doing all kinds of things to do that. But in general, the auto-completion and a few of the other smarter features are, are net win. We test all that stuff. And we actually also look, well, I can tell you about hundreds of features we have not launched because we measure them and we discover that they are net losses. They actually damage queries or they damage performance in some way. Uh, it seems like spoof sites can be uh, very threatening as like the internet becomes more immersive. So I was wondering where you see like 
where spoof sites are headed like 10 years from now and what efforts are being made by companies like Google to like curtail like their development? So great, great observation. Um, they're getting better in the sense that they're being spoofier uh, and they're harder to tell that they're a spoof. Um, and there's an interesting boundary. So for example, is the Flat Earth Society website a spoof or not? I have no idea. There are some people who I think legitimately believe that story. I think of it as a spoof site, but they might think of it as a completely, oh, this is really true. So there's that issue, right? And there's a bunch of stuff like UFO sites and so on and so on, right? Very clear. But then there's ones sort of that are difficult to determine. And it's, it becomes a problem because there are sites like, this is probably my favorite spoof site ever, is the dihydrogen monoxide website. Think about that. Dihydrogen, two H's and one O. Oh, yeah, water, okay. Um, and the thing about that site is everything on it is true. It's just exaggerated. Yes, dihydrogen monoxide has a pH of seven. Dihydrogen monoxide is, uh, is toxic in large quantities. I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, and so it's a spoof site. It's very clearly a spoof site. And it has led at least one city in Southern California, that should remain unnamed, to pass a restriction about the importation of dihydrogen monoxide, <laughs> which pissed off the water department a lot. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a question. But the other part of your question was, what are we doing about it? Answer, nothing. Uh, freedom of press issues, uh, we cannot say what your website should or should not contain, and so on. So we just, it's not our job. Right? We, will, we will block certain kinds of sites, like hate sites and so on. Um, but more to the point, we actually uh, tend to block those queries at, as they affect the suggestions. So we try to keep our hands off the content development as, as much as possible. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.